Jews have lived in the lands we now call Germany for a rather long time. They first arrived in the fourth century under the Roman Emperor Constantine. By the end of the 19th century, there are about 500,000 German Jews or Jewish Germans. Though less than 1% of the population, a significant number had become prominent in literature, music, the theater, journalism, science, and other fields that were open to them. Not all fields were, of course. 12 German Jews won Nobel Prizes. Gunter Louis was born in Germany in 1923. He lived for six years under Nazi rule. He fled to Palestine in early 1939, where he worked in a kibbutz for three years. In 1942, as General Rommel's divisions were closing in on Palestine, posing a lethal threat to Palestinian Jews, he volunteered for the British Army. He fought in Egypt and Italy. After the war, he served as an interpreter for the British military and occupied Germany. In 1946, he came to the U.S. where he has taught, studied, and written 17 books. His most recent, Jews and Germans, Promise, Tragedy, and the Search for Normalcy, the only book in English to fully explore the long, eventful, and troubled history of what he calls the German-Jewish relationship. I'm pleased that he'll be talking with us today. I'm pleased that you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Gunter, thanks for giving us some of your time today. Um, hey, I thought I'd, I, you know, I was thinking I would ask you how long you worked on the book, but that reminded me of the answer Jacques Barzan gave when asked how long he had worked uh, on From Dawn to Decadence, his history of Western culture. He said somewhat grumpily, I've been working on it my entire life. That's probably true of you too, and I, 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 I imagine. Have, have you been working on this your entire life? No, not really. Uh, maybe a couple of years. But it's your experience. I mean, talk, tell us, well, maybe start by telling us a little bit about your own life. I mentioned some of the details about your family. For example, do you know when your ancestors arrived in Germany? Not really. Um, my father lived in Memel, which is now, I think, Lithuania. And from there, eventually came to Silesia and eventually to Breslau, the capital of Silesia, which is now called Wroclaw, now part of Poland. Uh, so that's where I grew up. Uh, I had a relatively uneventful youth, I think. Uh, the things changed for the worse, of course, in 1933, when the Nazis came to power. I had to leave uh, the German school eventually and switch to a Jewish school. Uh, and then in 1938, I went to what was referred to as Hachshara, 
that means preparation for life in a kibbutz in Palestine. I was a member of a German-Jewish youth movement, which had started out as really being primarily German, but gradually had become more Jewish and eventually outright Zionist. So then in March of 19, I'm sorry. So in the fall of 1938, I was on a farm, a little village, German village in Bavaria, where a group of us were learning agriculture. And the day after Kristallnacht, November 9, we were assaulted by German stormtroopers uh, who beat us up rather badly and we had to go home. But then several months later, I was able to leave Palestine with an organization called Youth Aliyah, which was organized by an American woman, Henrietta Zolt. Uh, and that took me together with other uh, youth of my age, about 15 years old, to, an Israel, to a kibbutz. Now that was still Palestine, mind you, the British mandate. Just so this about your family, I'm curious, you came from, would you say, a fairly assimilated German Jewish family? There, I mean, there were different groups of Jews in uh, in Germany at that time. Um, we're going to talk more about that because I think it's it's important. Um, there were the there, were the, there was Orthodox community, or there were those who had come from the East, the Ostjuden. Um, your family was fairly prosperous, fairly assimilated. How would you describe? No, we were not very prosperous. Uh, my father was a businessman, but especially after 1933, uh, the business suffered, of course, from various anti-Jewish measures. Uh, his customers would uh, not pay their bills to the Jew. So his, uh, our, our, we were not, I would say we gradually became less and less secure financially. Um, my parents were assimilated like the majority of German Jews. Uh, when they went to, uh, to synagogue on high holidays, and that was it. Uh, I was made bar mitzvah, but that was considered a social tradition rather than anything truly religious. So we were quite typical in that respect of the majority of German Jews. You know, you, you write about the ancient history uh, of the Jews in Germany. Uh, you mentioned a decree by Emperor Constantine in 321, uh, in which he speaks of a well-organized Jewish congregation in Cologne, whose members owned houses and were Roman citizens. Um, do you have a sense of where they came from, what attracted them there, how they lived compared to Jews in other parts of Europe in, in Cologne? Well, I think this was just part of the general spread of Jews uh, who graduated had left Palestine and spread all over the Roman Empire. They were in France, they were in England, uh, they were in Germany. So it was part of the same process. Um, now there was, we think about fourth century, five, you know, centuries and centuries in Germany. Eventually, as you write, many came to view themselves as simply one of Germany's tribes. I think the German word you use is stomps, like the barbarians or like the Saxons, it seemed to make sense that, yeah, we are, we're a German tribe. That was how they viewed themselves. Now they weren't necessarily viewed that way by other Germans. As you, as you discussed, 12,000 Jews were killed during the Crusades. There were waves of persecutions in the 14th century after the outbreak and uh, the 14th century. Now they've been there for uh, almost a thousand years after the outbreak of the Black Death in Europe. 
Uh, Jews were accused of having caused and spread the Black Death. Uh, Jews were accused of, of killing Christian children to obtain blood for secret rituals. And by the way, you can hear an echo of that in the accusations made against Israelis by Hamas, by Hezbollah, and other groups that, that hate and, and, and threaten Jews. Maybe talk about that, that whole period from the fourth century to the 14th century and on in terms of how Jews lived, how they prospered and prospered, but also how they suffered. I'm sorry, did you have a question? Well, yeah, no, I just thought you might want to elaborate a little bit on the Jewish experience from, from the fourth century to the, you know, to the 19th century. Well, they lived eventually in what was referred to as the ghetto. That means they lived in an area that was allotted to them. Uh, there were various restrictions uh, in their dress. Uh, they had special obligations, special taxes to pay, get permission to marry and so forth. And from that ghetto, they were eventually released uh, in part as a result of Napoleon. Uh, the French uh, victory over Germany uh, and uh, gradually also enlightened German rulers uh, emancipated uh, the Jews and granted them full citizenship rights. Uh, and it was from that point on, which is roughly the first third of the 19th century, that uh, German Jews began to prosper and eventually uh, most of them became at least middle class. And, and so that takes us up to, to, to the 19th century. We get into the 20th century. There's World War I. And then, of course, after World War I, um, we get into the, the Weimar era. And this is interesting, and you write about it interestingly, this, this era, because it was an era of, 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 of both democracy and decadence. Um, there was widespread German resentment over defeat in what was known as the Great War later to be known as World War I. Uh, there was also widespread poverty during the global depression. You write that it was a high point of Jewish emancipation and assimilation in Germany. Jews got into professions they couldn't have gotten into in other times, uh, police, other things, um, where they had been barred in the past. And you write, and this is what I want you to elaborate on, the phrase German-Jewish symbiosis at that time. Yeah. Uh, as, I, as you said, it was really the high point of uh, German-Jewish convergence, you might say. Uh, uh, Jews were fully emancipated legally. Uh, that did not necessarily mean socially. Uh, that is to say, they were, no matter how wealthy they were, not necessarily accepted in uh, aristocratic or rich circles. But by and large, they did very well. And so you have a paradox in a way that on one hand, Jews were doing extremely well in advancing. At the same time, you also had the tremendous growth of anti-Semitic agitations and organizations explicitly committed to violence against the Jews. That went hand in hand. So the more the Jews achieved, the more they moved forward the stronger became the opposition. Right, because it was... That culminated, of course, eventually uh, in Hitler's assumption of power in 1923. And the, uh, that was really the end, of course, uh, uh, of the prosperous 
the Jewish German Jewish community. Although, and you write about this in 1933, as Hitler came to power, I think it's fair to say through democratic means initially, uh, and anti-Semitism was metastasizing and rising in part, as you say, because of resentment of Jewish achievement as much as anything else. It was still really difficult. You make a point of this, and it, it struck me that most people, most Jews in Germany, couldn't imagine where the road was leading. I mean, yes, it was hard, but the idea that this would lead to the genocide, to the Holocaust, the Shoah, didn't make sense. Logically, it wasn't in Hitler's interest to devote scarce resources to mass murdering Jews. I mean, Jews were not fighting him. Jews weren't resisting him in any meaningful way. If nothing else, the Jews could be used for slave labor, and some were, of course, but Hitler was more interested, as it turned out, and this is a, not 1933, this is in the 1940s, at that point, more interested in sending Jews to the gas chambers and ovens than in utilizing them um, to strengthen the Third Reich, the, the empire he wanted to build. Yes, I think it was unimaginable, not only to Jews, but also to most Germans. Uh, uh, what eventually happened, the euthanasia program, the, uh, the killing of uh, a quarter million Germans who were considered unfit, and eventually the final solution, the uh, program to exterminate European Jewry. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would have thought that this could happen. Now, to be sure, Hitler had made all kinds of threats in his book, Mein Kampf, but uh, that was not really uh, taken very seriously. And uh, it was always believed uh, that somehow uh, more rational forces uh, would prevail, in, even in the Nazi movement. And there were Nazi leaders who themselves voiced these sentiments. Uh, Göring did, Röhm did. Uh, I, I talk about, I mentioned the meeting between a German uh, Jewish uh, student leader and Röhm, the head of the SR, and this Jewish guy appealed to him and said, look, why don't you accept us? Uh, the, uh, the Italian fascists accept us. Why don't the German Nazis accept us? Many of us would like to join the Nazi movement. And he answered, well, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that would be okay. I just don't think Hitler would go for it. <laughs> so that was, a, that was the situation. Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great story. People need, I mean, I'm glad you, you, glad you told it and people need to read it. Uh, Rome is telling him, yeah, I got nothing against you people. And then he said, well, maybe I can get a meeting with Hitler and convince him. And he said, yeah, you can try. I don't think you're going to get very far, essentially, is what he said. Uh, a lot of Jews also thought, look, we, we've, we've coped with mistreatment before in Germany and other countries. We can cope with it again. We'll get through all this. Um, one of the things, this is you also write about this, there were those among the anti-Semites who said, well, during World War I, the, the Jews shirked their duty. Um, they were called, the Nazis denigrated Jews as cowardly shirkers, that's the phrase you use. Um, of course, that wasn't, that wasn't true, quite the, quite the contrary in terms of World War I. That's right, it wasn't. In fact, my father was an example of many Jews who volunteered for military service before they were conscripted. Uh, large numbers of German Jews did that. So yes, they were great patriots and uh, they continued to be patriots right through the war, even though it was not acknowledged and recognized. Yeah, in fact, I wanna, I wanna quote from your book because it, it, really, I found this fascinating. Out of a population of 500,000 German Jews, again, a tiny percentage of the population, 100,000 served 
their country in the war, about 80,000 of them on the front lines. Uh, the percentage of Jewish volunteers was higher than in the German population at large. About 35,000 Jews had been decorated and at least 12,000 had been killed in that war. Some became famous war heroes. You write about Fritz Beckhard. He was a World War I Air Force ace. He shot down 17 enemy planes. Uh, and what strikes me as particularly interesting is German Jews and the various German Jewish organizations thought, you know, all we need to do to combat anti-Semitism is tell people the truth, is educate people, they'll understand, and this will all go away. And of course, the truth did not set German Jews free. It didn't help at all. And it's an important thing to think about in the current era where anti-Semitism is on the rise and people are thinking of various ways how do we fight anti-Semitism? Can we do it with education and truth-telling? And one wonders if that's a real realistic possibility. Uh, yeah, at the same time, I think at the same time, uh, it's probably important not to uh, draw too much from this experience. In other words, just because German Jews ended up um, in the Holocaust and were largely exterminated, uh, this does not mean that uh, this has to happen to other Jewish populations today who are also well assimilated and well recognized. Uh, so I think what happened in Germany uh, was a very special thing. And uh, it, uh, there's certainly no uh, historical necessity uh, of this being repeated elsewhere. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I, I, you know, another thing I wanted to draw attention to is Jews could, were able to leave uh, Germany um, till what year, 1939, 40, 41? Uh, they were able to leave until October 1941. This is really quite remarkable because by that time, literally uh, tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of Jews in the East had already been killed by the Nazis in Poland as well as in Russia. But until over October 1941, uh, the regime encouraged Jews to leave. In fact, all the various anti-Jewish measures that had been adopted to destroy their economic independence, to subject them to various other limitations, were designed to make their life so miserable that they would get out. Uh, the problem was uh, that while Jews may have wanted to leave, they couldn't find a place that would accept them. So the real tragedy was that uh, tens of thousands of German Jews and other Jews could have been saved if the world had been more hospitable to refugees at the Remind time. Remind me, do I remember correctly that you got out through France and then actually walked over the Pyrenees into Spain before getting to uh, Palestine? How did you do it? Oh, no. I went uh, with this program called Youth Aliyah. Uh, it was Walter Benjamin. Uh, the famous uh, German uh, philosopher who tried to find his way uh, to freedom over the Pyrenees and eventually committed suicide when he succeeded. Uh, and, and so you went from where to where? From Germany, just trace uh, From Breslau to Trieste, and from there by boat to Haifa. Palestine. So, okay, so from Germany to Trieste, which is currently in Italy, but was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Uh, no, I think it was, it was already part of Italy after World War yeah. I, right? Yeah. I think it went to became part of Italy. Yeah. I think you're yeah. right. Yeah, you're right. A lot of German Jews, of course, were resistant to the possibility of leaving. Some wanted to get out, couldn't find places. But you tell the story that of Chaim Weissman, 
asking Nobel laureate chemist uh, Richard Willstatter said to move to Palestine, to just suggesting he should, and Willstatter re replying, I, I know that Germany has gone berserk, but when a mother has become sick, there is no reason for a child to abandon her. Now, and a lot of Jews stayed right to the bitter end, and very bitter it became, because they believed that, they believed this was still their motherland, their fatherland, and that they that 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 they would they would they would stick by it, and they would they would, and then they would show that they had become that they were so German, and that and their loyalty was so strong that they would sustain life in Germany even under this, and 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 that would eventually prove to German their German co citizens that 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 they were as German as anybody else. Yeah, well, that was the great tragedy because while German Jews had great faith in, uh, uh, in the goodness of the German people. Uh, this assumption was to be bitterly disappointed because a large majority uh, of Germans uh, came to identify with the Nazi regime, its various measures, including anti-Semitism. Now, you know, you, you make a good point about the uniqueness of the German situation, but I, but I just want to raise two parallels two similarities with what I see taking place in the West. The, the rise of anti-Semitism in Weimar with the Nazis began with a boycott campaign, right? The slogan was, do not buy from the Jews. I'll pronounce it badly, Kof nicht de Juden, right? Today we have a boycott campaign against Israel, don't buy from the Jewish state. The Nazis objected to what they called Jewification of Germany, Israel's enemies now accuse Israeli Jews of Judaizing Jerusalem, perpetuating the lie that Jews are not the oldest surviving people of that city and the only people ever to have had Jerusalem as their capital. Uh, also in the, in the Nazi party, uh, you talk about it as a party actually composed of various social elements, but with anti-Semitism serving as an important unifying element I might point out that anti-Semitism is one of the few points of agreement on the far left and the far right, and it's at least tolerated by quite a few others, including those who would not tolerate discrimination against other ethnic or religious minorities or against uh, sexual minorities either. Um, again, I'm not saying that the, that the situations are the same, identical, but there are, there, there are analogies there that, that, do, that do strike me. Yeah, I don't deny, of course, there are parallels here and there. Uh, but I think what is really decisive is that um, after the Holocaust, uh, we yet have to see any government uh, specifically and formally endorsing anti-Semitic measures. Uh, so uh, as long as democracies survive and you are working hard to help that along, as I know, in your ABLE Foundation, uh, I, I am reasonably confident that what happened in Germany will not be repeated. It's important for people to understand, and you do make this very clear in your book, that Jews were seen by the Nazis very much as a race, not just as a religion. The religion didn't matter. You could convert to Christianity. That wouldn't save you. You were still very much Jewish. Jewish being a race, an accursed race, one the Nazis believed had no place in Germany, and one which eventually, in the Nazi view, had no place anywhere in the world. I mean, the cries from the Nazis were, Jews perish, Jude Vereka, again, I'm probably pronouncing it bad. Um, again, we're, 
worth noting that this, this, that this view at that time and to this day resonated in parts of the Middle East, the most prominent Muslim Arab of Palestine, and he didn't call himself a Palestinian, he didn't like that term, uh, was Haj Amin al-Husseini. Uh, he was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, appointed, by the way, by the British. That's how they, he got selected. But during World War II, he moved to Berlin, where he assisted Hitler in the Nazi cause, um, not least through propaganda broadcasts into the Middle East, where he very effectively intertwined Nazi anti-Semitism with the Arab Muslim uh, variants, and also attempted to organize European Muslims uh, into Nazism. And then, by the way, the Nazis had no problem with, with Muslims. I think Hitler actually rather admired uh, Islam compared to Christianity. Um, just, uh, I guess you, you, you pretty much explained the, the experience of the Jews under the Nazis. It got worse and worse, those who could leave uh, did. But I guess by the time you mentioned in 41, when Jews could no longer leave, as I recall, there were about 160,000 Jews remaining out of the original 500,000 uh, in Germany. Um, and most of them, very few of those survived uh, the, the, 19, the early 1940s, if I'm correct. Right, right. So after World War II, what happened? How many Jews remained in Germany? How many Jews returned to Germany? What was the situation immediately post-war? A relatively small number of Jews uh, had been hidden uh, by German friends or relatives, and they survived underground. Uh, it's interesting to note that the number of Jews hidden and thus protected against the Nazis was smaller proportionately in Germany than in other countries like France, for example. But a limited number survived. And another limited number returned, uh, especially to East Germany. About 5,000 German communists went back to East Germany, uh, hoping that uh, socialism, as Marx had predicted, uh, would eliminate the Jewish problem. and uh, the, they would become good German communists. Uh, uh, and of course, that did not happen either uh, because uh, the communists, both in Russia and, and in Germany, gradually uh, turned anti Semitic, and uh, German Jewish communists were gradually eliminated from the leadership positions which they had first had achieved. Uh, in the West, uh, the situation gradually improved. There was quite a bit of early anti-Semitism, especially when there were still large numbers of DPs, displaced persons who had various privileges, who had better food than Germans at the time. Um, uh, but this uh, anti-Semitism uh, uh, decreased drastically over the years. And that changed again when you had the influx of large numbers of Arab or Middle Eastern uh, uh, refugees coming to Germany uh, in the last 10 years. So the upsurge of anti-Semitism in Germany today is a large measure, it seems to me, a reaction uh, to this influx. Uh, I think uh, Prime Minister Merkel probably deserves our moral admiration for her willingness to take in this huge number of unfortunate people. Uh, but the political repercussions were highly negative. It simply overtaxed the German democratic system 
and you today have an upsurge of right-wing parties uh, the, uh, and uh, a growth in anti-Semitism again. And that's odd in a way because the, the right-wing parties object to the, the, the massive immigration uh, from the Middle East of Muslims, um, and yet that doesn't mean that they are sympathetic towards the Jews in the country who are the victims of Muslim anti-Semitism. Right. I want to emphasize this point that in, under the Nazis, Jews who converted to Christianity, that didn't save them, even if, they, even if their parents had converted. In some cases, their grandparents had converted. They were still considered Jews. They were still targets. And then in, 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 the, in East Germany and in the Soviet Union and other communist bloc countries, they could say, Jews could say, well, I'm now a communist, so it, it shouldn't matter that I'm a Jew, but that didn't help. And all the Soviet bloc countries, except Romania, I'm not sure why, voted for the, for example, for the UN resolution denouncing Zionism as racism. And in other words, saying Palestinian nationalism should be supported, but Jewish nationalism should be considered a crime against humanity. So there was no, there was, there was, it's, it's really a catch-22, uh, no way out. Talk a little bit about, uh, well, Jews in, so I guess we've, we've discussed Jews in Germany today. How large a population is it, do you recall? I think it's about 200,000, uh, I remember. And the majority of them now are from, uh, from the East, from Russia. These are uh, Russian Jews. In fact, <laughs> it is being said, uh, many of them pretend to be Jewish. They probably even aren't, but it, uh, it, it made it possible for them uh, to escape the hardships uh, uh, of uh, of Russia and being admitted uh, to Germany where they got good jobs, education and so forth. So the majority of uh, German Jews are now from the East uh, and a relatively small minority uh, dates back to the original German Jewish population. And, and as I understand it, the, the, the Jews who living in Germany who come from the Soviet Union, for example, they're, they don't have this sense of Germanness that the German Jews did when you were a child, when you were growing up. Um, that 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 thousand years or, or more of, of of German Jewish history that that made Jew, the German Jews feel that they were part, a, a tribe of Germany, um, that they were very German, that they looked upon Germany as their fatherland. These were immigrants from the Soviet Union, immigrants to Germany, and it's where they live now and they will until they feel the pressures are, are too much. And if that happens, then, then, then they'll leave. But it's a, very, but it's a different German Jewish population. That's right. It's largely opportunistic. Uh, it made it possible for them to get into Germany and uh, prosper and do well in contrast to what happened in the Soviet Union and later Russia. Yeah. Maybe talk about Germany's relations with Israel. On the one hand, Germany is rhetorically very supportive, has been for a long time. On the other hand, um, the German government's been very friendly, not least to the Islamic Republic of Iran, which threatens and incites in, uh, genocide against Israelis. And that doesn't seem to bother the German government in terms of uh, in terms of pursuing business relationships that might be prosperous for their automobile firms and others. Yeah, I think that's true. But by and large, uh, all the German governments over the post-war years uh, have been committed to support of Israel. 
Uh, it took some time before Germany was prepared to pay reparations, but eventually they did very generously. Uh, they have also provided uh, restitution uh, to German Jews in America. I myself benefited from a grant which I received that helped my education. Uh, so by and large, I think uh, the German governments consistently have been very supportive of Israel. Gunter, anything else in the book that I should have asked you about or anything that you've thought about subsequently since writing the book that you, that you want to emphasize in this conversation before we, we've come to a conclusion? Not really. I think we covered the ground. Well, Gunter, uh, your book again is Jews and Germans Promised Tragedy in the Search for Normalcy. It's a marvelous book. I learned a lot from reading it. I think others would as well, and so I, I don't hesitate to recommend it. Uh, thank you for all the work you've done. Um, thank you for this edifying conversation, and you and I will continue to talk. Very good. Thank you. And thanks to all of you also who have joined us for this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.